want you to write down I'm not able to click I want you to write down I want to go back one one slide what you have seen chapter one what is now and what will take place after these things now consider the context John has been, uh, because of his deep faith in Jesus and because of his willingness to be bold, his willingness to testify of Jesus, no matter who is listening, he has been put in a physical timeout. He's been put in exile. He's been put on an island called Patmos, which was a prison camp. And as he gets to this prison camp, what we find out is that Jesus reveals himself to him while he is essentially exiled from all other people. Now, if that doesn't reach our context, I don't know what does. We are currently being put on, essentially, a stay-at-home order. And with a stay-at-home order, there's a lot of things we can't do, but there's a major thing that we can do. And that major thing is we can draw closer to Jesus. And Jesus wants to draw closer to us, but many times because of the things going on in our lives... Uh, we, we don't have a whole lot of options as far as, you know, what we can actually do. Uh, but I would submit to you that if you can't Sabbath during this time, I don't know that you'd ever be able to Sabbath. And so that being said, after these things, so we've gone through this historical period of time. Hey, Stephen, my slides won't go to the next slide. I need the next one. So the rest of the book, spoiler alert, chapter four through five is adoration. Uh, The next two chapters, we're going to look at Jesus glorified in heaven. Chapter six through 18, uh, for chapter four and five, it's what I believe the believers are going to be taken up and our view will be the throne room of God. Chapter 6 through 18, in the meantime, the the Christ-rejecting world will experience tribulation, judgment of the Christ-rejecting world during that time. That'll be all non-believers. Chapter 19, the second coming of Jesus from earth, excuse me, from heaven to earth. He's going to come back and he will come back. uh, Revelation teaches us he'll come back with 10,000s of his saints. And when he comes back, he'll bring us with him from heaven to earth, and uh, he'll actually set up his thousand-year reign in the millennial kingdom that we'll study in chapter 20. And then chapter 21 and 22, we'll see the eternal state. Jesus is going to essentially set up a new heaven and a new earth that's not been tainted by sin. And so uh, in the next slide, we'll actually begin our study in chapter 4 and verse 1. So after these things, John writes, after these things, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me saying, come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. Now, what you need to know is if you turn to the left in chapter one, verse 19, uh, the divine outline for the book of Revelation, what you'll see is in verse 19, he says, write the things which you have seen, 
the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. And that word there for after this is metatauta in the Greek. But then if you turn to chapter 4, verse 1, he starts by saying metatauta. After these things, I looked. And then he ends verse 1 by saying, what Jesus says is, come up here and I will show you things which must take place, metatauta, after these things. And so I don't know about you guys, but the world that we live in today, and even before the pandemic, the world that we lived in is, is one that's wrought with trials and temptations and problems and, and all the things that go on with life. And yet what I would submit to you is that God is always trying to point us towards thee after these things. Now, I understand the common uh, phrase that people say, which is, um, you're going to be so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good. But I would submit to you that many times we can be so earthly minded that we're of no heavenly good. The reality is this thing is temporary. Uh, We know that. Uh, We're being exposed to that even more lately. We've insulated and isolated ourselves from the thought of dying. And whether you die of a virus or whether you die of a car wreck, whatever you die from, we all are going to die. So the question is, what's afterwards? And the reality is God's revealed it to us if we're willing to hear it. And so in verse 1, he says this, After these things I looked, And behold, a door standing open in heaven. Now, I find that interesting because we've already read last week in verse uh, 20. Jesus speaking to the Laodicean church says, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and I will dine with him and he with me. He's invited us in to fellowship. And he says, you've got the only doorknob on your heart. And I'm not going to force my way in, but here's the deal. We found out from that chapter, chapter 3, verse 20, that if you open your heart to him, chapter 4, verse 1 says, he will open the door of heaven to you. And I love that because if we draw near to God, God draws near to us and he invites us into fellowship with him. And Revelation chapter 3, verse 7 through 8 says that Jesus is the key and the door. He says, I hold the key of David, in verse 7 through 8, and I open a door that no man can close, and I close the door that no man can open. This is good news. How do I get in? There's no stairway. There's a taking up. God takes us up into his presence. And yet what we find out is as he says this in verse 1, the first voice which I heard, so he hears a voice, It is described as, it's a simile, he says, it was like a trumpet speaking with me saying, come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. It's like a trumpet, but it's speaking. Now, I'm not talking about the guitar player that used to speak through his guitar. He, you know, that's all right. You know, like he's not speaking through the trumpet. His voice is like a trumpet. And that trumpet is in fact um, coming from him, from his throne room. And if you turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 4, he actually, Paul has already written about this to a church that was very aware of his second coming. As a matter of fact, they thought that maybe they had missed it. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, 
Paul writes, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be, look at this, caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. And so that phrase in verse 17, caught up, is the same phrase that he uses here in chapter 4 of Revelation, where Jesus says, come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. Come up. So I have there for you, in the Latin, it's the word raptus. Uh, There are many camps of people that want to explain away the idea of rapture. They say, well, the, the word rapture isn't in the Bible. Well, you're right. In English, we call it caught up. And, and it seems like John just was like ripped up, uh, ripped up off of the ground by God to heaven. And the word there in the Greek is arpazo, which is the idea of caught up or rapture, to take up quickly. Now, interestingly, he finishes this verse. He says, come up here. And then he says, I will show you things which must take place after this. I'm going to show you some things. God doesn't show us things that we can't see on our own. And I love this because in Jeremiah 33.3, I call this God's calling card. Jeremiah 33.3 says, call to me and I will answer you and I will show you mighty things that you do not know. And so as we see the open door, we see the taking up and then we see the invitation to come and see. Interesting, because if you study the book of uh, the Gospel of John, all the time John and all the other apostles are saying, come and see. So verse 2, he says, immediately I was in the spirit and behold a throne set in heaven and one sat on the throne. Now, I want to turn to the left to chapter 1 and verse 9, because here John, he says, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Verse 10 of chapter one, he says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. So he tells us his physical location. Where's his physical location? The island of Patmos. Then he tells us his spiritual location. He was in the spirit. Jesus said, if you are not walking in the spirit, no man who walks in the flesh can see the kingdom of heaven. And yet, if you are in the spirit, you will see the kingdom of heaven. And so he's already said, I'm physically on the island of Patmos, but your physical location does not limit to where you can be spiritually. Your physical location does not stop you from communicating with God. And so in the same token, in the same letter, Here he says, immediately after being taken into the throne room of God, he sees this throne, but he says before that, he says, I was immediately in the spirit. And in Galatians chapter five, verse 16 through 26, it talks about the fruit of the spirit and it talks about the works, the deeds of the flesh. He says in Romans seven, he says that there's this battle warring between the deeds of the flesh and the deeds of the spirit. And in Corinthians, he says, I've put off the old man concerning the flesh, and I've 
put on the new man, which is Christ. I'm clothed in Christ, so now I walk in the spirit instead of in the flesh. So what do I mean by all this? Well, apparently, based on what John experienced, as soon as he was caught up and taken into the presence of God, he was no longer in the flesh. He was no longer hindered by his flesh, which for John would be interesting because John, on the night that Jesus was betrayed in the garden, on the night that he prayed, Lord, take this cup away from me, yet not my will but yours be done, he asked his disciples, and John was one of them, to come and pray with him. And what did they do every time? They fell asleep. But because they fell asleep, Jesus said to them, indeed, the spirit is willing, but what? The flesh is weak. So in heaven, guess what? Weakness no more. Flesh no more in the spirit. And so he looks, he's in the spirit and a throne set in heaven. The word there for throne is, or excuse me, for set is planted or rooted. It's established. The idea is that it's permanent. And not only is it permanent, but it's everlasting. Turn with me to Psalm chapter 93. Psalm 93. The psalmist writes this. The Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed. He has girded himself with strength. Surely the world is established so that it cannot be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The word everlasting is where we get the word uh, vanishing point is the meaning behind it. So we can't really comprehend uh, infinity. We can't really comprehend everlasting because everything that we know is not permanent. But the vanishing point is what a sailor would say, or what we might say if we go to the sand drags and the sand, the salt flats in the western uh, United States and race uh, dragsters. They want to see how fast a vehicle could go. So it's the longest straight stretch you can go. But a sailor would call the vanishing point or use this word for everlasting to say that the circumference of the earth is round. So I can only see until a boat or a ship or an island is so far away on a non-cloudy day. I can only see so far and then it disappears on the other side of what I can see. And the idea is, is that it's from a place, it's from everlasting, from a place that I can no longer physically see. And so God's throne is established from the vanishing point. The floods have lifted, O Lord, verse 3. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lifted up their waves. The Lord on high is mightier than the noise of many waters, than the mighty waves of the sea. Your testimonies are very sure. They're established. They're immovable. Holiness adorns your house, O Lord, forever. So this idea of being set in heaven isn't just that it's put there. It's that it always has been there and it has never moved. And so God sits on this throne uh, permanently, which the idea of permanence and the waves and the sound of mighty waters takes me to Matthew chapter 7 in verse 24. Because in Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, Jesus, speaking in a parable, talks about the man or woman who listens to his words and puts them into practice. 
He says, verse 24, Therefore, whoever hears of these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and they beat on that house. Diversity happens. And yet it did not fall, for it was established, it was founded on the rock. And that rock is Jesus Christ, and he sits on a throne that never moves. And so notice here, and I put a note there that's wrong, by the way. I put that there's no description of the throne. We're getting ready to see a description of the throne room. But before he describes what the throne room looks like, he says there's one on the throne. Now think about that in the context of every nation that's ever existed. There has never been only one to sit on the throne of any nation. One on the throne. Only one ruler. Only one king of kings. Only one lord of lords. And the throne only has power. It's not important so much as the one who sits on it. The throne only has everlasting power because of who sits on it. And one sat on the throne. So verse 3. Verse 3 says, And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. The appearance of the enthroned one is described in very poetic language. But he mentions two, two stones here. And I have two pictures for there on the, on the right. They're reddish stones. But the jasper stone on the top, and then there's the sardius stone. Both of them are red. Both of them are considered fine or precious stones. Uh, but the red speaks of the blood. It speaks of forgiveness. It speaks of mercy. It speaks of grace. And so this color around the throne is, is mentioned, but I also want to point out that it's not just about the color, it's also about the stone that's mentioned, the sardius stone. Well, if you turn to Exodus chapter 28, there's the priestly garment uh, described of the priest that would represent the nation of Israel before the mercy seat in the tabernacle. This is how uh, God was worshipped in the Old Testament. But as the priest would approach, he would have this, uh, this breastplate, this chest plate. And as I turn to 28, the 20th chapter, he's got an ephod made of linen. He's got the breastplate. And on the breastplate... They would put, verse 17, settings of stones in it, four rows of stones. The first row shall be a sardius, a topaz and an emerald. Now the sardius stone represented the tribe of Reuben. There would be 12 stones, and each of these different stones represents a different son of Jacob, the patriarchs. But it's interesting because Reuben is represented by sardius, and the name Reuben literally means, see a son. So when Reuben's mama had him, her first response was, see a son. And in those days, to have a son meant you were going to pass on the family name through him. But he said, or she said, see a son. 
But think about this in context of the throne, this color is all the way around. It's the first thing that John mentions other than the throne. He mentions the sardius color and the stone. So for us, as we enter in the throne room of God, the first thing that this stone points to is, see, the sun. We walk into the temple, we see the presence of God, and the first thing we notice is the Son of God. And then secondly, he mentions this rainbow, but not a rainbow like we would think with all these different colors. He says an emerald rainbow. Now, the only place I think of as far as the rainbow in the Bible is in Genesis 9. And it's a picture of grace because God has just judged the world with an, oh, uh, an entire world flood. And when he floods the entire world, he gives this message, hey, anybody that wants to get on the ark can be saved from the destruction, the judgment that is coming. But after, he, after the flood, God describes to Noah, I'm going to hang my judgment bow and I'm going to hang it up like we hang up our compound bow after deer season. He hangs it up. I'm not going to use it now. And as he hangs it up, he says, I'm going to put my bow in the sky as a emblem or a sign to you that I will never wipe out the entire world again by a flood. Grace. And if you read the rest of the story of Noah, you can tell it's grace because even Noah, even though he found grace in the, fa- in the eyes of the Lord after it all went down, uh, his story does not end very well. But it's grace. This color, this picture, this rainbow of grace at God's throne room. But I want you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4, because in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 16, the writer says something very interesting. He says in verse 16, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. He describes God's throne as a throne of grace, and yet I think many times We spiritualize that and don't consider the fact that when we come to God's throne, we're coming to a literal throne. And it is a throne that's adorned with mercy and grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help, to find help in time of need. You want to know where the source of grace is? It's the throne of God. And so as we go to verse 4, Around the throne, we've started at the throne. And anytime we have any relationship with God, any, everything in heaven is surrounding Jesus. Everything on earth is meant to surround Jesus. Everything in our galaxy is meant to surround Jesus. And I want to point this out because I think we think, as individual people in our culture, that the world and existence itself, and even God, is meant to rotate and surround us. That, that God revolves around us like everything else should. But the reality is, is that we are meant to revolve around God. Our lives are meant to surround Him. He is meant to be the focal point. And in this picture in heaven, He is the focal point. And so around the throne... We see 24 elders on 24 thrones. And my first question is, who are they? Well, there's many theories, but I believe that the Bible is the best commentary on the Bible. So turn with me to Roman, excuse me, Revelation chapter 21. We're going to skip ahead, so watch out for the spoilers. But in Revelation chapter 21, 
it describes this new city, Jerusalem. And I mentioned that earlier, that God's going to give a new heaven and a new earth. He's going to create it. But it's not going to be like what we see now. And in the new heaven and the new earth, we have the new city, Jerusalem. And around the city, in old cities, there are city walls. If you've ever been to an old, old city, they have gates. And those gates are where you pass into and out of the city. Well, in the city Jerusalem, there will be three gates on each side. It'll be a square. No more random uh, property lines. It'll be just a square. There will be three gates on the north, south, east, and west. And in those gates, on those gates, will be names. Revelation chapter 21, verse 12 says, Also she had a great and high wall, she being the, the new city Jerusalem, and with twelve gates... And twelve angels at the gates, and names are written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, three gates on the west. So the names of the patriarchs are on the gates. Interesting, because gates, um, basically the, the Israelite people, these are the patriarchs, are the gates through whom we get our understanding of who Jesus is. The Old Testament proclaims Jesus. Romans chapter 3, verse 1 says, To them, the Jews, were committed the oracles of God, the Old Testament scriptures, the canon. And because we have the Old Testament scriptures, the New Testament unveils everything that was in them and shows us that it's about Jesus. But without the Old Testament, we don't have any way into entering into an understandable relationship with God as he revealed himself through the different ages. And so we enter through the gates into understanding God through the people of Israel and what he revealed first to them. We owe the fruit of our salvation to them, not only because of the oracles, but because through them, through this people set apart for his use, through the lineage from Abraham all the way through Isaac and Jacob and then the sons and their descendants, we get Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah. But then on the foundations, verse 14 of chapter 21, it says, the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Interesting because in Ephesians, in chapter 2, in verse 19, it says this, chapter 2, verse 19. He says, Now therefore... Speaking to Christians, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Interesting, right? Because we just talked about this foundation in the new city, Jerusalem. Jesus Christ himself is the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. 
So John's in the spirit. He's in this place that God is building currently in our time. And yet he's outside of time because he's in God's presence. And we see the fulfillment of what Paul writes to the Ephesians here. God's building a dwelling place for his spirit to dwell. And it's made up of people. The foundation, the apostles, the gates, the patriarchs. And yet we are all built into one place where the God of our salvation dwells, and it's built on a foundation of the the apostles. So, verse 5. He continues on, and he says this. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. So, From his throne of grace and mercy. God is a God of grace. He gives us what we don't deserve. He saves us. God's a God of mercy. He does not give us what we do deserve when we come to him by his son. But out of his throne proceed what proceeds from a judgment throne, a judgment seat, and that is lightnings and thunderings and judgments that are very real. And they can become ominous to us. And it made me think of Exodus chapter 18, excuse me, chapter 20, verse 18 through 21, where God has given them the law, the Ten Commandments. And as Moses comes down and they, they see the appearance of Mount Sinai, there's clouds covering, there's, there's lightning, there's thunderings, there's voices coming from this mountain. And when, the, when Moses comes down, the people are standing down there waiting for him to come down with the mountain from the mountain with the law, and he comes to them. He's got this glow on his face, and they say to him, we don't want him to talk to us. You go listen, and you tell us what he says. We're frightened. They have a true fear of the Lord, and yet God, in the same way, even on his throne of grace, has lightnings and thunderings. He is to be feared because he is righteous But think about the context of what John is writing to here. His audience that's going to read this is a people that's being persecuted. He's on the island of Patmos because of persecution, because of righteous living. And so his people would be comforted by this God who will judge and make all things right. It is not right that we would be persecuted for living righteously in the sight of God. And yet what We find out here is that God is going to beat out judgment and he's going to make things right as they always should have been. Now, to oppressed believers being tried by the world, this would be comforting, not scary. It wouldn't be ominous. It would be like us, okay? I like thunderstorms. I love them. I I don't like that they could zerp stuff in my house. Don't get me wrong, but I like storms. There's something peaceful to me about it. And maybe it's because of this. Um, when I'm in the house and I'm under a covering, uh, maybe for us, we're under the covering of Jesus. Thunderings aren't scary because we know that he took our punishment for us. But when I'm in my house, having slept out in the woods before during thunderstorms, being in a house feels much safer. So to the Christ rejecting world, this should scare the pants off them like somebody in the middle of a field golfing during a thunderstorm. 
but to the world that come, to the people of God that come under the shed blood of Jesus by faith, <laughs> we're safe from the judgment of God. We're safe from his wrath. His wrath was poured out on the lamb. But then in front of the throne is also a seven branch candle stand. It says the seven, uh, let's see, verse five, seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. So we've talked about this before. Jesus in chapter one, he's standing amidst a seven branch of candles and those candles represent the seven churches. But in this case, that same seven branch candelabra has one source and it's a picture of the Holy Spirit and it's got one source of oil that feeds those candles and yet it's seven, the sevenfold nature of the Spirit of God described in Isaiah chapter 11 verse 2. I won't go there today because we described it before. So this is what's before the throne. Lightnings and thunderings and voices. And at the same time, a seven branch candle stand. The Holy Spirit, his presence is there with, see, the sun. But then in verse six, he goes on and he says, before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne, And around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature like a calf. The third living creature had a face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. And they do not rest day or night saying, Holy, holy, Holy Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So before the throne, picture this. I have there an image for you that probably doesn't do it justice. I'm going to guess that it it doesn't do anywhere close to what John's seeing. John's just writing down what he sees. Before the throne is a sea of glass. Now, in the Old Testament, there there was this sea this, this uh, laver that they would wash in before they went into the presence of God. But here we have this sea of glass. And for the first time reading this, um, I noticed that it made me think of the passage where Jesus calls his disciples in Mark chapter 4 to cross over the Sea of Galilee with him. So let's turn there to Mark chapter 4. And you know the story, it's very famous. Um, they go across the sea, and in verse 35 in chapter 4 of Mark, on the same day when evening had come, he said to them, let us cross over to the other side. And when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was, and other little boats were also with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. But he was in the stern asleep on a pillow and they awoke him and they said to him teacher do you not care that we're perishing notice that the sea was not peace-filled a storm came up out of nowhere as does happen on the sea of galilee and when it came up very quickly it was so troubling that the waves beat into the boat they weren't on a cruise ship they were on a small fishing boat a dinghy and As they were in this boat, the boat began filling with water. I don't care who you are, you're getting scared at this point. And yet these are 
you know, some of them hardened fishermen who have seen storms, no doubt, and yet they're afraid. And as he was in the stern asleep on the pillow, they woke him up and said, we're perishing, we're scared. And he arose, he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was great calm. So they started out by being afraid of the storm and notice this, he said to them, why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? So they started by fearing the sea and the storm and they end by fearing who? Jesus. They're like, who is this guy? And so they're afraid of this peace. It's a peace-filled sea and they're afraid. And yet they're afraid of the peace that doesn't make sense. And I would submit to you, as I read this passage this week, and I see the lightnings and thunderings and the cherubim, and they're crying out, holy, holy. And we see these colors proceeding from the throne. And we see these, these angels flying nonstop. And there's lightning and thundering. And yet there's this, in the midst of the throne room, this sea that's like glass. It's pristine. It's perfect. And it just reminds me that God, when we have peace with him, gives me peace that doesn't make sense. Uh, many of you might be praying through this right now in our current situation. Look at with me at, at uh, Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 and 7, a very oft-quoted verse. He says, Paul writing to the Philippians, who, by the way, are the poorest among all the churches he went to. They don't have much, but they have more joy than anybody. He says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, give thanks and let your request be made known to God. And then the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. There'll be a shield to you. And so in this place where there's judgments and grace and mercy and worship taking place, there's also peace. As we approach the throne of grace, there's also peace in God's presence. In his presence is actually fullness of joy. But I submit to you that as I look at this scene, the peace doesn't make any sense even in heaven. It makes no sense to me. All I can see is the noise. I am very sensitive to noise. And yet what it seems to me is that the peace-filled sea is still there even though there's noise and judgment proceeding from the throne. This is good news to a people who are troubled. This should be good news to us if you'll receive it. So then in the midst and around the throne, there's these cherubim. And we see them described in the same way, similarly, by Ezekiel in chapter 1. And I heard somebody say this week that if you think about the description of these cherubim and the faces and the eyes everywhere, and I think Ezekiel actually describes that they, they act like they're a wheel within a wheel, and there's all this description that really kind of boggles the mind. It looks weird to us. Um, but John Corson describes it like, a young person who's not gone through puberty yet and sees his parents kissing. (laughs) 
You see your parents kissing at a certain age, and you're like, ew. And later you think, ew, too, because it's still your parents. But as you see your parents kissing, or you see a, a couple that are so in love with one another, all you can think at a certain age is, ew, cooties, that's weird. And yet, you get to a certain age, and all of a sudden that attitude changes, and you see your spouse, or you see this person that you want to be your spouse, and, and all of a sudden you've got oogly eyes and googly eyes, and you're, you're just enraptured with love for them, and all of a sudden it's not weird because you're there in the moment. And before that, you're not in that spot yet. And I believe that these cherubim will not look weird to us, but that, in fact, will be in heaven and when we see them, they won't look weird anymore. It will make total sense to us. And so these angels that are surrounding the throne of God, says they're full of eyes, which speaks of their ability to see perfectly. They have no blind spots. They have eyes within and eyes without. They have uh, insight vision like we don't have. Our hearts are deceitfully wicked. They can hide from us. But nothing can hide from these angels. They have eyes everywhere, and they cannot, if we have eyes, where, what do your eyes turn to? Where's your eyes default setting? Because in the throne room, these cherubim have access to see anything, and yet what they can't get their eyes off of is God. They never rest, it says. God never sleeps nor slumbers, scripture teaches, and these cherubim are looking at God, and all they can do with what they see is fly around, never sit down, and constantly proclaim, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, who is to come. He's eternal. He's holy. He's nothing like we've ever seen. These are angels saying this. They've seen a lot of things. They're in the throne room of God. There's got to be some cool stuff there, but they cannot get their eyes off of God. They have six wings. They never rest, but they're always proclaiming. And they have the, the face of four living creatures, the lion, the ox, face like a man and an eagle. We should be like the cherubim. We should constantly have, we only got two eyes to, to, meet, to bring in and rein in. We need to be constantly focused on God. They could see anything, and yet that's what they're looking at. But notice that the cherubim, they reflect him the character of God, and they proclaim him. So I want to take a minute to talk about this. The, math, the gospel accounts actually describe Jesus and his, he's got like four different natures that we would describe. And yet these cherubim also, almost like four witnesses within the throne room, they reflect the character of God. The lion of Judah the first one is a lion. Matthew describes Jesus as the lion of the tribe of Judah, the king with authority and power. We, are, we should be like these cherubim. We should roar with God's word as the authority. Proclaim the truth, people. God's given us the truth. We know the truth and it sets us free. Roar with authority. But at the same time, we should be like Mark describes Jesus as the ox, some of your translations will say the calf, that we think of a, a small animal, but the idea is an ox, a beast of burden. Uh, be a servant. Jesus is described as a servant. Mark chapter 10, verse 45 says, um, says that the Son of Man, Jesus speaking, says the Son of Man did not come to be served, 
but to serve and to sacrifice his life for the good of many. Uh, And so Jesus, being the humble servant, he just keeps plowing faithfully, serving the Father. And that's how we ought to be as believers, roaring God's word with authority and yet being humble servants of our King. And then Jesus is described in the book of Luke as the Son of Man, humanity, yet God in humanity. He's fully God and yet fully man. Be human. But we find ourselves in interesting times right now, and I think we can either be on one expanse where we go, I'm above this and I don't care. I, I see God's in control, which is good. We need to see that. Or we can be like, you know, hey, I care so much that I'm not going to do the things that God's given me to do because I'm so afraid. And yet what God's called us to be is trusting him and yet fully human. Show compassion, people. Be relatable. Relate to others. Maybe you're not afraid, but you know what it's like to be afraid. Identify as part of the human race and all of its trials and temptations, but knowing at the same time the source of life. Jesus manifested this perfectly. I don't ever see him in a rush. I don't ever see him in a panic. And yet I think a lot of that was because he spent time with his father. He knew where these things would land up. And then John, the book of John, the gospel of John, describing Jesus in his divinity, fully God, not un-God, not just man, but God and man together. And in this, we see his divinity because an eagle is the highest living creature on earth, soars higher than any animal, has heavenly perspective. Go up to Tom Sock, sit on the, the thing if it's still legal, to, to be on the, the big tower there and, and look around. And you can, we think that where we are is the only place, and yet go up on that tower and you'll see that there's much more to this life, even physically than we normally think about. God's perspective is perfect. Higher than any living creature, soaring above circumstances even. And yet, I learned this this week, that an eagle is the only animal that can look at the sun and not go blind. What are those sunglasses we use to go fishing? They've got that protective coating. And then if you look at the water, you can see through it. An eagle can fly directly at the sun, and because of its dual eyelids, can actually do that without being blinded by it, which is pretty awesome. He's got one of the most powerful eyes on the planet. And so turn with me, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 40. A very common passage as well. I think I have a coffee cup with this verse on it. But Isaiah chapter 40, in verse 28, says this. He says, have you not known and have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor grows weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak and to those who have no might, he increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary and the young men shall utterly fail. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not grow faint. So as a believer, we should be like all of these things, roaring with God's authority, 
serving with humility and faithfully just plowing along as God directs, recognizing and identifying with other human beings and weaknesses and and having compassion, relating, and at the same time knowing where it's all going to end, having the heavenly perspective and renewing our strength as we wait and linger in his presence and asking him for daily strength. And so in verse 9, we continue on, and he says, after the cherubim are all proclaiming the mightiness and the holiness of God, in verse 9, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, John can't even help but exalt. He's, he can't help but just say all these things. It's kind of a run-on excitement. He says, when, whenever the living creatures do this, verse 10, the 24 elders who are sitting on thrones, who have crowns on their heads, they fall down before him who sits on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever and they cast their crowns before the throne saying, you are worthy. You are worthy to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. So after this exaltation, there's this response in worship to the leadership of the cherubim. The cherubim are worship leaders. And the elders fall down. They have a physical reaction to God. When was the last time that you let yourself physically be affected by the glory and the presence of God? When was the last time that you get down on your knees? I get that we don't have to get on our knees to pray but have you ever done it? There's something special to letting your physical body bow down to your creator. It's freeing, it's humbling, it's so good. They're in the presence of God and that's the first thing they do. They throw themselves down. And then they take what's on their head. They've probably just gotten them, by the way. These crowns are sitting on their heads. It's all that the disciples could worry about. Mom, could you go talk to Jesus and ask him if we can sit at his right, left hand when he gets his kingdom? And yet in their heavenly perseverance, they get there, they get the crown, and the first thing they can do in response to the presence of the Lord is take the thing off and go, hey, you're worthy. Here you go. And they want to cast it at his feet. And there are crowns that the Bible speaks of. Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, the martyr's crown, the crown for being a witness, some of them unto death. The crown of life to all those who love his appearing, James chapter 1, verse 12. The soul winner's crown for the evangelist that just continues to show people Jesus. The crown of righteousness, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, for those who endure, there will be a crown of righteousness awarded to them. The crown of glory, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4. These are just the ones mentioned in Scripture. I would submit to you that there are many more. That there are rewards for living faithfully unto Jesus. And we may not see them. More than likely, the best rewards aren't seen in this life. But notice that they throw themselves down. They throw their crowns at his feet. And then they sing together. A bunch of dudes singing together. If you've ever heard a group of men praising God in unison, it is the most powerful thing that I've ever heard on this earth. Men singing, 
humbling themselves and letting their scratchy old men voices go. And yet they pour out words in response to him. When was the last time that you audibly poured out songs of worship and words of worship to your king? It's, it's, it's awesome. His worthiness, his leadership, his creativity, his works, they, they worship him for those things. He's worthy. The way he leads, what he's created, how he's done things, he has done great things. So as we close, I want you to think about this. We will all be at this place one day. This is not something that we kind of have in our heads that gives us hope to get through this life. This is a real place. John was taken up into a place so that he could write down a description so that you and I could have this heavenly perspective. And we will really fall down in adoration and worship in this place. There will be a time where every knee Even the Christ-rejecting world will bow the knee to Jesus Christ. And I submit to you that many people, and I have been one of those, that have said, I don't care if I have anything to give to Jesus, I just want to be with him. I just want to be in his presence. I just want to get there. But I think that when we get there, if we don't have something to throw at his feet, we'll still get to be there, by the way. But I think there will be Maybe not a sorrow, but a, um, a disappointment that we don't have something to throw. A, a disappointment that, man, if I could just, if I had, I wish I had something to give him. And I would submit to you that the things that we think that we've given him on earth, we haven't, uh, because we can't give him anything on earth. But we can give him things in heaven, and the only thing we can give him is what he's rewarded us with, ironically, crowns crowns of glory. So after these things, and let me tell you right now, I'm looking forward to after especially these things. There will be an after these things. There are current situations not forever. This life full of pain and suffering and sorrow is not forever. Um, But after these things, um, will you have treasure stored up to lay at his feet to contribute to his glory and honor that he deserves. Do you want to? After reading this passage, after studying it this week, I want to. Everybody in that throne room is focused on Jesus and they are worshiping him with all of their heart, all of their soul, all of their mind, and all of their strength. And that was the first commandment, right? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. When we get to heaven, no more neighborly love needed, just godly love, just loving him, just lavishing him. And my question is, do you recognize that he's asked us into his presence, and then he shows us his glory? We've got lots to look forward to, folks. It's going to be amazing. And, and, and I love this, because in 2 Corinthians As I close, in chapter 4, the Apostle Paul writes this. Verse 16 of chapter 4, 2 Corinthians. Paul, having experienced much trial and temptation and problem and persecution, says, therefore, we do not lose heart even though our outward man is perishing. Yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. 
For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we do not look at the things which are seen. And I would stop for a moment and say, stop looking at the things that are seen and letting that rule your mind. Stop it. He says, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are what? Temporary. But the things which we think are temporary that are not seen are actually eternal, forever, perfect, good, established. So I hope you've enjoyed focusing on the things that are not seen, that are eternal. And Father, I pray that as we've peered into by your grace through the pen of John, this, this heavenly scene, would it give us perspective on how much things on this life really matter? There are things that really do matter. There are things that do very real, do scare us. But in the light of eternity, I hope they pale in comparison. I hope we can get that perspective at least from today's passage. Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness. Thank you for your goodness. Lord, uh, bless each family that sees this. Lord, bless each uh, relationship that's being strained by our current situation. Lord, help us to press in deeply to you because you are the only one that's not shaken. Help us to grip tight and anchor ourselves to our living hope. Thank you, Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.